In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The parable of the prodigal son is a very familiar section of the Gospels, so it can be a bit intimidating to preach. Do you try and bring a new angle? Do you just hit the same four chords that we all know and love? I actually am not sure which of these I'll be doing today, but I will share with you what struck me as I read and prayed over these texts, and you can then tell me which of the two it was afterwards. I want to start by looking at what prompted Jesus to tell this story in the first place. His parables are usually answers to questions that are posed to him, often by the Pharisees. And in this case, the Pharisees are grumbling that Jesus is eating and welcoming sinners and tax collectors. Jesus responds to that accusation with the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and lastly, the prodigal son. And when it comes to this parable, there is a sort of well-worn path of interpretation in which we see ourselves as the younger son. We've squandered the gifts we've been given. We sin against God, and we learn that even still he is eager to forgive us. This is absolutely true. And it's why we read from one of the shorter parables, the parable of a lost sheep, at the closing of our service during Lent, to remind us how eager God is for us to repent and return to him, waiting with open arms. But I think it's the older brother and not the younger that was the intended focal point of Jesus' parable. The Pharisees, who believed themselves to be righteous, were bothered that Jesus would associate with notorious sinners. And it may seem obvious, but maybe it would help us to think about why this is. Why wouldn't you want to dine with sinners? Why would you be scandalized by a popular rabbi dining with tax collectors? Well, for one, you might think that Jesus is compromising, that by associating with scoundrels, he was endorsing their sin, and that he was risking himself being dragged into their unfaithfulness. Maybe they felt that he ought to be spending his time with more important people. Jesus, they might say, if you're leading a kingdom movement, if you are the Messiah to bring a new righteousness to our people, how could you possibly be wasting time associating with these worst kinds of people? And a sort of different, maybe even more scandalous fact is that Jesus wasn't gathering with pagans, outsiders who had the excuse of never having received the law. It would be one thing if he was hanging out with a bunch of Roman citizens and teaching them about the law of Moses. But these were unfaithful insiders who should have known better. But Jesus' mission actually was pretty narrow while he was on earth. For the most part, it wasn't evangelism, it was revival. So the parable shows us how God views people already marked as his own who have strayed away. And typically, we hear this and think to ourselves, yeah, I'm on board with this. The application seems obvious. Those people need to stop being so judgmental of these people. And we all have our own rough-around-the-edges types that we think Jesus would love to spend time with. And we also have our abandon Jesus' message of grace and aren't acting very Christian types that we think Jesus is going to come and judge. And typically, our rough-around-the-edges types is ourselves. And in the parable of the prodigal son, we hear a message that God is not just willing but eager to welcome us home when we repent. Amen, may it be so. But maybe the parable wasn't meant just to inspire solidarity with the younger brother. Maybe we're actually more like the older brother. And the thing we need to learn is how to have some sympathy for the people we believe to be in the wrong. Jesus paints this picture of how miserable it is to be stuck in sin. Think about the details he shares in his parable of the prodigal son running out of money, losing all of his friends, being stuck serving in a pigsty, eating the food that the pigs eat. He paints this picture to show how miserable the prodigal son is. That picture should move us towards love instead of judgment. 
and then begin the process of reconciliation with the attitude of the father, not the attitude of the older brother. And when we fail and refuse to even be open to reconciliation, we should notice how the father is gentle with the older brother as well. His tone is not accusatory. It's welcoming. It's a bit of promised grace for those of us with wagging fingers who want God to judge those other Christians, whoever those other Christians might be. But once we've accepted the need to be open to restoring broken relationships, it's important to note that reconciliation isn't just an end to hostilities. It is making things right. It is the younger son returning, acknowledging his sin, and the father forgiving. Reconciliation is a process, and it is hard work. It isn't forgetting about debts. It is negotiating the terms of payback. As the children's theologian and resident of the land of make-believe Daniel Tiger sings, saying I'm sorry is the first part, then how can I help? All of you with young kids have heard that song before. <laughs> Daniel Tiger had to learn that he couldn't just say sorry, he had to do something then afterwards. Reconciliation involves restitution. Some of our children's stories have the most poignant messages. In the case of our sin, God is faithful to forgive, but the process by which we are reconciled is through the cross, not by God forgetting that we sinned in the first place. Now, how this is accomplished through the cross, the mechanics of atonement, that's a deep mystery that we can reflect on in a few weeks, and we'll have that opportunity on Good Friday. But for now, as we think about our reconciliation to God and to each other, let's remember that reconciliation isn't about forgetting conflict, it's about dealing with it. Now, Paul summarizes his mission in the text today as a ministry of reconciliation. He summarizes the gospel as the message of reconciliation. Now, he's primarily talking about, about being reconciled to God. It's why he calls himself an ambassador for Christ. But his ministry was full of both bringing people to God and reconciling people in the church to each other, sometimes back to himself. We see this throughout many of his letters. In Ephesians, he talks about God through Christ making one new people out of two, bringing together Jew and Gentile. In Philemon, he works to reconcile a runaway slave and master, appealing to Philemon and Onesimus' siblinghood in Jesus, a reality greater even than the Roman slavery system. The Roman slavery system, N.T. Wright says, was so prevalent that to think of abolition in the first century would be like imagining our lives without electricity. That's how prevalent that system is, and yet Paul says there is a greater reality to which we are going to appeal, even greater than that slavery system. When Paul writes to the church in Galatia, he says, they have abandoned the true gospel for a false one, and his evidence is the visible separation of Gentiles and Jews, a division that makes sense on the ground, but it's undermined by what Paul understood as central to what the resurrection of Jesus meant for humanity, that we all are equally inheritors of Abraham's promise because of the faithfulness of the Messiah into whom we are all baptized. And here in 2 Corinthians, Paul says they no longer look at each other from a human point of view or according to the flesh. If I can conflate this morning's New Testament texts, I think Paul sees everyone as a beloved and yet lost son and daughter of a father who longs to have them back. And should they return, reconciliation happens because of the faithfulness of Christ, which gives reason for celebration. We must not respond like the older brother who does not leave room for reunion. The older brother who says, this son of yours, to which the father retorts, your brother, gently correcting and uniting the two in his reproof. Our disposition has to be one where we desire to be united to one another. 
It's one of the things that Jesus prays for just before he's arrested on Maundy Thursday, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. We can imagine that Jesus perhaps understood what was to come, and that's why he interceded on our behalf. But I do have to offer something of a counterpoint. I know this is unlike me, but stick with me. (laughs) What I've just said can be used to force an end of hostilities where no reconciliation has actually happened. Remember, those two things are different. Jesus did tell the parable of the prodigal son being reconciled to his father, but he spoke also the words of Matthew 18, where there's a process for addressing those who sin against you, first starting one-on-one, then in a group, then in front of the congregation, and then, if you must, breaking off the relationship. And I should note that even this isn't universally applicable. A conversation came up at a conference I recently attended where we were talking about reconciliation within a church. And the speaker had this compelling model of how his congregation deals with conflict, where members begin this process of working out disagreements by saying, I submit to you as a sign of mutual dedication to reconciliation. And it's beautiful, this idea of people saying, there is this disagreement, I submit to you in Christ. But it was brought up, what about women who have been sexually abused by their pastors? Obviously, we cannot ask anyone in that situation to live by the letter of Matthew 18, going one-on-one to confront the person who'd wronged them, starting with, I submit to you. That process could not work. And so the Bible gives us this vision of the beauty of reconciliation with one another, and the desire to reconcile needs to be deep in our hearts and inspiring our imaginations, because reconciliation is not a simple process, and it requires us to think deeply in the power of the Spirit to understand how we might reconcile but the process can be fraught with difficulty. Now, there are other less severe caveats as well. Paul himself, who considered the divisions between Jews and Greeks within the church to be the sign of a false gospel, Paul, in sorrow, had to part ways with Barnabas in the book of Acts when they disagreed over whether or not to bring John Mark with them on their missionary journeys. Maybe they should have worked out their differences. Maybe James could have acted as a mediator. But we know that on this side of the life to come, there are times when we find ourselves unable to figure out how to resolve conflict. It doesn't have to mean there's animosity. It doesn't have to mean that there are fights. But sometimes we grieve and we figure out how to do things the best we know how, even imperfectly. But not every Christian is going to be able to sort out every potential difference with every other Christian this side of the new creation. We know the work of Christ's reconciliation has an end and is ongoing, and so we recognize some things are not reconciled just yet. But I'll close with this. May we never start there, because conflict avoidance is simply not an option. Whether it's because we avoid the people that we are in conflict with, or because we avoid the issues, we can't ignore the incredible, restorative potential of reconciliation given to us through Jesus. Reconciliation to one another and to Christ. As I've been praying this week over these texts, one thing I've prayed for is that our community can be the kind of place where we care for and love each other enough to work out the things that make us different. Not for complete unanimous agreement. One of the strengths of All Souls is its remarkable diversity of thought, honest and sincere about the ways we differ. The goal is not uniformity, but unity. And those two things are different. We live in an age in which reconciliation, peace between people of different opinions, seems impossible. But you don't make peace with people you already agree with. And the reconciling work of the cross isn't to bring similar things together, but for Christ to make a people for himself out of persons who have no business being together, 
if we are looking at each other according to the flesh. But Paul says we don't look at each other according to the flesh anymore. And what a witness we could be of the miraculous things that God can and does do through the cross. A prophetic witness issued to a contentious and conflict-addicted and reconciliation-averse world when our little church continues to grow in love and charity and be the kind of place where people who are unlike each other can serve and worship alongside and love one another. We live in a world of older brothers, unhappy and unwilling to receive lost siblings. And we're also a bunch of younger brothers who think they are the older brother because we're unwilling to reflect and repent for the things that we have done wrong. But I pray in the midst of all that, may God give us the heart of the Father, eager to reconcile, who is reconciling all things to himself, and I pray even reconciling each one of us more and more to each other. Amen.